Hey everyone, welcome back to another week here on MWO Sports. Ryan Drury, I'll be joined as always by Clarkie and Steve Sabern. Packed show today, the Stanley Cup final is over. Later on in the show, we will be joined by NHL associate coach Brad Shaw of the Columbus Blue Jackets to talk about his bubble experience, his thoughts on the final and Tampa Bay winning, and his thoughts on what next season might look like. Still pretty up in the air, but first, we'll be joined by Blue Jays analyst and broadcaster Ben Wagner on the Jays' end of the season, losing to the Tampa Bay Rays and the bright future ahead for an exciting ball club. You're listening to and watching MWO Sports brought to you as always by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports. Welcome back to MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. Ryan Drury, Chris Clark, and of course, Steve Saverin. And uh, Steve, pretty exciting stuff. I mean, obviously not exciting for Jays fans. The Blue Jays go out, but the future is bright. Let's be honest, this team doing a great job making the playoffs. And we had an opportunity to sit down, you and I. Unfortunately, Clarky couldn't make it, but we got to sit down with Jays analyst and broadcaster Ben Wagner, who is, of course, a familiar voice to our listeners on CKNX AM 920 and chat a bit about the Jays' season, uh, the areas they need to improve. There's a couple, mostly on the hill. And uh, we got to chat a little bit about what he uh, thinks the future may hold for the ball club. Uh, we got to record this on Thursday of this week, chatting with Ben Wagner, Blue Jays analyst and broadcaster here on MWO Sports. Enjoy. Welcome back to another week here on MWO Sports. Ryan Jury joined by Steve Sabern. We've got a great special guest on the program once again. Blue Jays analyst and broadcaster Ben Wagner is on the line. Ben, how are you? Doing good. Uh, I think the season stopped a little too abruptly for my liking, but all <laughs> things considered, you know, we're, we're good. Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame, but I mean, I, I think overall, most fans are marking this down as a success. Uh, they took a step forward, lots of good performances out of young players. Overall, what did you make of the Jays season and their performance against the Rays, who, let's face it, are stacked on the pitching mound? Yeah, I think you have to look at it in a couple of different ways, right? The Blue Jays beat up on some teams that they should have been beating up on, and that's why a large run of their success happened at the end of July to the start of September, which was really good because you saw a developing ball club uh, capitalize on less than stellar pitching, especially in the American League East, and also against some less than stellar pitching in the National League East at the same time. Um, but then... You know, when the schedule got tougher, we saw what happened in the Bronx, but they quickly rebounded and made some adjustments of what happened in New York, and they won the series over the New York Yankees and clinched a chance to go to the playoffs against the New York Yankees. A lot of people had that offense, and if that pitching staff was able to hold up, and obviously they've gotten healthier down the stretch too, uh, as maybe a potential World Series participant depending if they can get past the Rays. And the Blue Jays go into that final weekend still with a chance to jockey for position, be as high as a four, maybe a five, if they're winning or if the Marlins could have helped them out. Uh, that didn't happen, but you know, then you've got to go in and face one of the toughest teams, not only in the American League, you've got to face one of the toughest teams in baseball in Tampa Bay. And I think that series really flexed how far ahead the pitching is in Tampa Bay versus where the Blue Jays are right now and where and where kind of that cream rises to the top uh, you know the blue jays are a top half team we we thought that with the expanded playoffs that they could definitely play themselves into position and then the conversation of making the playoffs um but there are way 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 more positives especially around the young core to take out of this season than any of the negatives at the same time 
uh, you realize there's a lot of work to be done to complete that roster and make it as competitive as it needs to be to go up against the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, the New York Yankees. You look at what they're doing in Minnesota, um, other stops around the way. Cleveland, you know, has a pretty complete roster, too. And where does it all start? Solid power pitching. Let's talk about the uh, the decisions uh, by the squad there, Ben, and um, starting Shoemaker in game one and Hyun Jin Ryu in game two. I mean, there was a lot of debate about that. Um, I can see why they did it, because with Shoemaker, if you get the win, great. If you, if you lose, then you got your ace going in game two. Was that the kind of the decision process? Uh, that's That's, you know, the the way that was kind of plotted out, right? They were trying to be creative and use a pitching scenario with, with shoe going into the series. But I also thought the blue Jays mathematically were never really in question of missing the playoffs for the last couple of weeks of the regular season. So if you were concerned about giving Hinge Ryu an extra day's rest, uh, you had a, you had plenty of time to build in an extra day to skip a start here or let him go 50 pitches against the Baltimore Orioles or somebody, you know, ahead of when you're going to need your number one pitcher to go out and, and lift the lid on a postseason play. The best, if Hinjun Ryu is healthy, if Hinjun Ryu is healthy, and I think there are a lot of question marks whether or not that is the case uh, and why all of a sudden late in the process do you hear the word soreness, do you hear the word um, we're going to be creative, we're going to add this extra day, and we presented a plan. Uh, those raise way more questions to me than, than anything solidified leading up to that. So with all the time and knowing that the Blue Jays were in fantastic position those last couple of weeks, you could have arranged your pitching rotation to, to have guys that you want to go deep into that ball game. Um, I thought, you know, the creativity sometimes is necessary. I don't debunk that whatsoever, but you had guys lined up in an ability to, to pitch deep into that series in games that they had already been doing. So, uh, Taiwan Walker, you know, is an interesting one. They kind of passed over and plotted for game three. So why so much emphasis on being creative and thinking uh, on on ways to outthink the Rays, who are the best in the game, of outthinking and cu- coming up with creative ideas? Uh, that's not really what I thought the Blue Jays should have been doing right out of the gate. Um, you know, so – and then once you get to the game, you, you, that's even before, like, the first pitch is thrown. That Shoemaker's dealing. His pitch count is – minimal. He looks great. Give him the eye test. Um, and that's what makes me think that the front office and baseball operations around ultimately around Mark Spiro and, and Ross Atkins had a scenario in mind that they went into this game. Like, this is what we're going to do. And if it's two innings for Matt Shoemaker, and obviously he got the third inning because of the limited pitch count, uh, that would be able for him to flip around and maybe come back on game three. Um, but you can't plan for game three in game one. And that's where I think the Blue Jays push too many chips into the middle of the table in that, in that scenario, you know, cause um, if you don't use, if you let Matt Shoemaker go deeper into that ball game, maybe then you go to the AJ Cole, you go to the Thomas Hatch earlier, Anthony Bass in those high leverage situations. It's a tight ball game. Anyway, Matt was giving you no indication that the game was going to unravel on him. Um, and then all of a sudden, Robbie Ray looks pretty good coming out of the bullpen last night or for, for game two. 
in that scenario. And it's a different look. Even though it's a lefty versus a heavy right-handed hitting lineup for the Tampa Bay Rays, it's a different kind of lefty. You know, Hinjun Ryu never touched 90 miles an hour but once last night. Robbie Ray's coming in at 96 and 97. And it's it's a completely different approach for the Rays, you, you know, even though you'd be backing up left-handers together. And then you then you go from there. So, I, you know, I think that the situation unraveled very, very quick on the Blue Jays with what happened and, and kind of how they were plotting it. And, you know, I, I get a master's course in baseball every night that I come home from the studios <laughs> riding with Buck Martinez and Joe Siddle. And, and they said it perfectly. And I think the line was used on the broadcast, too, that you just cannot script a baseball game. You, you just can't do it. There's too many in sport in general as well, in my opinion, is played by humans, reacted by humans, and uh, the drama folded, unfolded by the human element. And, and that's, that's where game one didn't happen because the Blue Jays didn't hit, and they ran into a buzzsaw named Blake Snell. And Tyler Glass now in the early stages of that game was really, really good. And the Blue Jays all season long had trouble offensively with guys that had uh, high velo, you know, fastballs and, and the ability to locate fastballs at the same time. So, um, you know, it was it was kind of a juggernaut against the Blue Jays in, in a very, very short 36-hour window uh, that they had to deal with all of that. Yeah, it was it was strange, Ben. I mean, like you said, the sport is played by humans and there were a lot of detractors of the way the Jays used their pitching staff through the whole year, not just these these two games that they lost to Tampa who have unbelievable pitchers. I mean, I, I get it. I, I like analytics. I, I enjoy digging into numbers. Uh, I'm an Oakland A's fan, but that whole money ball thing that happened back in the day, they did that out of necessity. They didn't have any money. The Jays have plenty of money and they did something where a lot of people, including Tanner Roark, who came out and said, I don't like being, you know, judged by a computer all the time, especially in a situation like you said, when Shoemaker's dealing, he looks really good. Your impression overall of just the whole season and the way they use their pitching staff, which seemed very, you know, keyboard meticulous, if you will. Yeah, well, I think and going back to even outside the uh, the two games we're talking about in the playoffs, if you look at the season overall and the way that it was massaged and manipulated from a pitching standpoint, they limited the innings of their starters. Uh, and, and sometimes that was very much warranted. You know, Tanner Roark and Chase Anderson did not give the Blue Jays the best chance to win a lot of nights out, um, either with long early innings, playing from behind, or the fact that, again, the numbers will tell you as well, third time through the order, teams perform better, even against some of the best pitchers in the game. So, and, and the numbers spoke highly of that against Hinge and Ryu as well, who's supposed to be the, the ace, if you will, the number one of the staff. So that's why you didn't see some of those fringe guys like Trent Thornton early on, uh, Tanner Roark, Chase Anderson. And then you go out and you get a guy that had pretty good success out west in, in Taiwan Walker and throwing into the sixth inning, getting to the seventh inning, uh, and, and seemed to be way more durable than anybody that was in the rotation at that point. And yet they put the handcuffs on him too. And that's where you get into the, the beginning of September, right after the trade deadline. And these guys kind of started to slot in. And I don't know that you could use that argument against Robbie Ray because he, he was never really given a chance to fit into the rotation. But again, he was a bulk guy, right? But again, you're only seeing him for 
two, three, maybe four innings max. Um, so I, I thought for a 60 game season and trying to do things for a bullpen that was surprisingly good, um, for the most of that run. And, and you can bridge your sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth with your four, four legitimate arms and reliable arms in the bullpen. The Blue Jays were comfortable just getting to the fifth, and they just had to figure out who was available to get to that fifth inning that day. And there were so many rules, and you know where guys had to stay down. The, the Blue Jays just overall were not durable enough, not durable enough in terms of what they were being able to give again in starting pitching, which has just been their albatross the last couple of years. Uh, and then with young arms that you don't want to overtax in the Julian Merriweathers, the Thomas Hatches, Anthony Kay, who, who clearly was breaking down towards the end of the year because his stuff wasn't as sharp. Um, you had Ryan Barucki. Rarely did those guys ever get asked to go back to back, let alone pitch without two days of rest coming back into uh, an appearance. So everything was really, really um, doctored. I think, I think that's the best way. You, you know, you could just say that the entire season was doctored from the pitching standpoint. Let's talk a little bit about uh, hitting uh, Ben. And I found that throughout the season. And again, I'll put an asterisk beside this because 60 game season, you're in a hurry to try to find what gels. But I found there's also a lot of movement up and down the lineup. You had a guy hitting ninth one night, then lead off the next night, you know, trying to get guys into a rhythm as quickly as possible. Do you think that through this whole experiment that next season we'll see more of a consistent lineup hitting wise? No. I'm, I'm, I'm judging on the background. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm judging on the last couple of years, too, where the Blue Jays have had inconsistent consistency <laughs> with, with that. You know, um, so, you know, last year, Danny Jansen let off a ball game. There is no rhyme or reason why Danny Jansen should be leading off a ball game. Uh, this year, he was predominantly at the number nine hitter, and obviously he was not making a lot of contact. The catching position overall wasn't giving the Blue Jays anything. Um, but you, you, even the shifting of Kevin Biggio, why in the world is Kevin Biggio coming in hitting eighth in a, in a lineup? Why are, you, why are you trying to break up the bottom third and taking one of your best hitters and putting it down there? Or uh, I thought they relied on Travis Shaw batting third way too much this season. Randall Gritchick, you know, had a lot of empty at bats. He had a hot start to the season. And I know a lot of teams and he even talked about, you know, the adjustments that he were, he was making and, and we saw it with average ability to drive the baseball, but and he led this team in almost every offensive category. Why get cute with what he's doing and, and why then shift him around in the order? Um, you know, I, I think the blue Jays, I think the blue Jays look at it again of what they project a lineup to do against an individual pitcher, how they can maximize some at bats but I still think you want your best hitters, your best hitters given the pocket of time to get more at-bats per night. And by shifting down Lourdes Goriel Jr., when he's on the heels of an American League player of the week, now to bat sixth or seventh in an order, you're taking away an extra at-bat for that game. I want this guy to come to play four times. Um, I, I want this guy guaranteed to get three at-bats, you know, in a given night. So, um I thought I thought the Blue Jays could have done a little bit more of a steady approach to their lineup, find where guys are comfortable, 
And, um, and I'm not, you know, even though I, okay, so like I say, comfort, but that doesn't necessarily mean Vladimir Guerrero Jr. likes to watch how Lourdes Guerrero Jr. is pitched and he wants to hit behind Lourdes. That doesn't mean that Lourdes hits three, Vladdy's got to hit four either. You know, if Vladdy's producing, Vladdy's dangerous. Um, but if he's not producing, that, that, makes, that makes the next guy need to move up in the order in my opinion. And uh, so I think, I think the Blue Jays learned a lot about themselves and hopefully if this 60 game pocket was about harnessing data and figuring out what kind of hitters the Blue Jays do have, um, maybe that's the advance and that will pay off in the years to come. But I, but you know, I, I thought that there was too much lineup shuffling this year for where the Blue Jays were. If the Blue Jays were a deeper lineup in a, in a much more stout and consistent offense, Maybe you have that luxury, but I just don't think the Blue Jays were constructed for that kind of maneuvering at this point. Ben, you brought up a number of the AL contenders, the Yankees, of course, Tampa. You know, the Jays just stared down the barrel of Tyler Glasnow, guys like Charlie Morton, who they didn't end up seeing, and, of course, Blake Snell. I mean, you look at all the great pitching staffs, Cleveland, of course. Um, I think that we're probably all in agreement that that is the major area the Jays need to bulk up in. It's great that they got Hyunjin Ryu. And I referenced my Oakland A's earlier, back in the day when they didn't have money and had to do the money ball thing. The Jays have money. I've got a list in front of me here, Ben, of Major League Baseball's. This is on MLB.com. Their top free agent pitchers going into next year. Now, Taiwan Walker and Robbie Ray are both on the list, so let's ignore them. And, of course, Marcus Stroman on the list. Don't think that's going to happen. So I'll read out some names here of their top free agent pitchers. Give me a couple names maybe out of this that are realistic for Jays fans to maybe hope they could convince to come and pitch for this exciting young team. You've got Trevor Bauer, Masahiro Tanaka, Mike Miner, Jake Odorizzi, Jose Quintana, and James Paxton, the Canadian. Is there a shred of hope the Jays could pursue any of those guys? And if so, which one would you choose? Uh, I, I think there are a couple on the list. Um. I think Tanaka is one. I think Odorizzi would fit into the mold where the Blue Jays would look at him as well. And I'm trying to think of, of also just what I know about the organization, but also in terms of years. That's going to be a big thing. But what kind of what kind of year commitment are some of those guys looking for um, if they were potentially going to come to Toronto? But also factor in, this has been a big talking point over the last couple of days, is how the Blue Jays handled their pitching staff this year going to be inviting enough for one of these big free agent guys. Are you going to, are you going to take the ball out of Masahiro Tanaka's hand after three innings? <laughs> uh, no, that's going to go over too well, you know, and that's going to be a very tough question for an agent to ask a team representative and conversations then to go between the organization and the eventual signing of the player. Um, you know, but I think, um, I think Jake Odorizzi probably fits that list. Masahiro Tanaka probably could get into that list. Uh, as well, I'm I'm not. I've, I'm a big fan of James Paxton, to be honest with you, but I don't know if he fits the bill for what the Blue Jays want either. Um, and, and you know, you want more than anything, I think, and I know the coaching staff would want this too. Guys that are proven to be durable and and go out there and have the ability to pitch. It all comes down to pitching. Um, I don't know if, you know, maybe third on the list would be Mike Miner. But, you know, that that again gets into a lot of a lot of questions on the periphery, whether or not 
uh, the Blue Jays want to make a commitment like he's going to probably want in free agency. So there, there is. To answer the question, there are shreds of hope out there. Absolutely. Um, and I think that the Blue Jays will need free agency because they do not have the answers internally. They do not have it stockpiled where you're going to have not only individuals within the system available to come up and get going into the rotation. You may have some sample sizes come up you know, for three or four starts, but you don't have guys that are major league ready yet uh, at the upper levels, even insurance policies. Do you think, Ben, um, that being fairly set in the field, like when you look up and down their lineup, I don't think there's there are too many tweaks they have to worry about on the field. And they've got enough young guys to say, hey, we got another you know, two, three years. Is that going to take the pressure off getting pitchers or is are there more tweaks they want to do? Well, I think there are some tweaks they have to do. Um, you know, the Blue Jays just played okay defensively. You know, there were there were some gaps, sure. Sometimes, the you know, the, the, the smallest errors hurt the worst, and we saw a couple of them last night in the playoffs. Um, but I, I still am a believer that that outfield can get a lot better. And you need somebody either on the corners that can produce some runs. Uh, if, if Teoscar Hernandez has turned the corner, that is an incredible job, you know, of being patient with an individual. And for hopefully Teoscar, you know, he blossoms into that guy that can potentially roll out of bed and hit 40 home runs. Uh, and then because of what he's doing with the bat, that gives him a little bit of uh, a cushion, you know, defensively. But I also thought over the course of the season, he got a lot better defensively too. And he improved on his routes and he improved on some of the reads. Um, I, I still would like to see the Blue Jays have a true center fielder, you know, somebody that they could rely on to go out and track down balls and, and cover a lot of territory, not taking anything away because again, you know, Randall Gritchick was asked to do a lot. And um, while his, his route efficiencies and other things that he was able to do improved over the course of the year, I still think that's a big hole. I think the Blue Jays, as Bo Bichette is a great player. He's a great player. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sure that he is cemented as the shortstop for the Toronto Blue Jays in the next two, three, four years either. Um, you know, a, a solid shortstop with additional range, that vacuums up a lot on that diamond. So um, I'm really, really looking forward to see what, you know, the Blue Jays could do perhaps with that. Um, you know, Kevin is this utility knife. Uh, that that has so much potential and obviously a veteran approach at the plate, even though he's a young guy. Um, so I think there are holes in, uh, you know, the catching core took a step backwards this year, too. Um, it just in looking at offensively, if we're talking about the depth of the lineup, you didn't get anything from Reese McGuire this year. Danny Jansen, after showing a lot of promise in spring training with a great approach, uh, COVID probably hurt him the worst, you know, and, and uh, that was disappointing. And so you, you got to have something, you know, something there if he's not able to advance defensively because there were, there were a lot of days where it was evident that the game plan that was orchestrated or changed within the game, pitchers were fighting what was coming off the wristband. Um, so something's got to give there. So, uh, you know, we well, listen, I look at it every single day, and I guess I'm close enough where I can see all the warts, right? So um, I still think that there's a lot of ways to improve the Blue Jays from where they're at, and that only bodes better for what we have seen. If you can improve an, a lineup that has already been able to get to this point 
from where they were last year, they're taking the steps in the right direction. Yeah. Well, it's funny you compare it. Like when I was looking at it, um, my Jays heyday, of course, 91, 92, 93. And when the Jays fielded that great team back in 1991 and they lost to the twins in the ALCS, they didn't stop there. They kept building, right? So same situation is, you know, continuously to get better. Uh, although I do like personally, um, if they were to move forward, have Biju at third, Bichette at second, um, Guerrero Jr. at first, and then find that shortstop that could possibly be also a veteran leader amongst the young infield would go, you know, a long way. Yeah, or... I mean, I, I think if you just if you find somebody that is just a true shortstop, you know, at the range, and I know shifting comes comes into a lot of it now, and you limit range um, that's necessarily required from the traditional positions too. Um, you know, that's that's going to be a big upgrade for the Blue Jays. And you talked about Vladdy at first base. I <laughs> uh, I know he's just going to be 22, and he he can grow into position. Um, you know, I, I don't know that that's his forever home either. So to be, and you just can't put a guy that's 22 years of age uh, as a full-time DH. You know, hoping hoping that he runs into more baseballs than what he has so far. But um, again, maybe we're too close to it. You know, and, and and we see all and we see all the empty holes uh, that the Blue Jays could improve. But bottom line is, you know, it's a it's a steady build, right? And you reference 91 to get to 92 and. Uh, 92 to 93 and changing just how the Blue Jays were built. Um, you have to continue to add. You have to continue to add. And you have to continue to move forward. And I think that that aspect of it, just seeing what this group did this year, would be more inviting to potential free agents, you know, moving with the bats and coming into the Blue Jays. Playoffs are still on. Unfortunately, the Jays are gone, but hopefully next year they continue to build on an exciting young core and you will hopefully as well get to hear Ben Wagner on CKNX AM 920 as we carry all the Jays games next season. Whenever that starts, Ben, thanks so much for joining us here on MWO sports. We really appreciate it, buddy. Really appreciate the opportunity. Look forward to talking again. Thanks, Ben. All right, we'll take a quick break here. Thanks to our friend Ben Wagner, Jays analyst and broadcaster, and we'll come right back here on MWO Sports with NHL associate coach Brad Shaw here on MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports. Welcome back to MWO Sports, everybody. Ryan Drury here, joined by uh, Clarky and Steve Savern. Brought to you, as always, by CoolBet.co. We thank our friend Ben Wagner, Jays analyst and broadcaster, for joining us to talk about the baseball world. Now we shift over to the hockey world. Stanley Cup Finals over. Tampa Bay wins their second-ever Stanley Cup in six. We're very pleased to talk about the bubble and all the experiences he had there by NHL associate coach in Columbus on John Tortorella's staff. Brad Shaw joins us again. Brad, how are you? Doing very well. How are you doing? We're doing well. Uh, pleased you could join us. Obviously, we would be, you know, preferring, uh, except Clarkie, of course, Big Leaf fan, we'd be preferring if we were talking about a Columbus Blue Jackets first ever Stanley Cup win, maybe next year, hopefully. But uh, just tell us a little bit about what the bubble was like. I mean, this is the weirdest year in sports history um the nhl did a tremendous job i think at keeping everybody safe not a single positive test but take us inside there what was it like living in a hotel um it was uh 
probably a bigger challenge than most people would uh, recognize. Um, flew out of Columbus first five days. Uh, we weren't supposed to really uh, have any contact with anybody from any other organization. You know, it was kind of, they called it the bubble within the bubble. And so your your restaurant times were all, you were given the restaurant and you were given your hour and a half window. And if you didn't want to eat there, then it was room service or it was uh, Grubhub or Uber Eats or you, you pick your food delivery service. Um, you know, it was novel uh, first couple of days, you know, hey, this is different. This is a kind of a little new. Um, I think that got old in a hurry. And even after five days when things sort of opened up a little bit and you could then go to any restaurant that was within the bubble, uh, which was fairly limited um, at any time, uh, it was still a very uh, confining environment. It was, uh, you know, the, the the what you really miss is the, the the freedom to make your own decision. You know, my my phone charger goes on the fritz two days in. Every team has been given a concierge. So I call our concierge, I explain what I need, give her my credit card. Uh, a day later, I have a new phone charger, um, mm. which sounds great. Hey, that's great service, uh, except the ability to go to a store and pick it up yourself is kind of something that like, hey, I didn't think I'd miss that, but I kind of missed it. You know, it was uh, the little things that um, just, I think the freedom to go where you want, when you wanted, uh, you recognize guys how important that is to our day-to-day -day lives when it's uh impeded a little bit like that brad what bubble were you in the uh canadian national exhibition grounds or royal york uh we're in the royal york okay did, and, did you know uh, if there was any difference between the two or did you even know well i we went to hotel x we actually played uh, pickleball there one day our video coach is a big pickleballer and brought his own rackets and balls and they uh, very different feeling hotel, very, you know, very new, uh, beautiful view of the lake from the, the pool upstairs. And uh, it had a, a walking access to BMO Field. So I think it had a little bit more of an open mm. uh, sort of sense to it than what the Royal York was. You know, the, the tunnel to get to the rink from there was pretty much either enclosed or underground. Uh, very... Um, just not a lot of places to get sunshine, not a lot of places to get natural light, some fresh air, uh, things, again, that you just really take for granted when you're, you're going through your daily life. And then when you're kind of stuck and told you can't do it, it's, uh, you know, it's a it's a bit of a hindrance. But, um, you know, I, I really I take my hat off to the the teams that made it as far as they did. I thought there would be no teams that had a chance down three one given the mental effects of that bubble where um, mm -hmm. even us, you know, if we would have beaten Tampa Bay, then we would have moved then to the nicer hotel. If we would have won the next round, then we would have moved on to Edmonton. Mm -hmm. So there would have been a little bit of change there over the next two series. I think that would have been refreshing um, to get to a different bubble or a different, you know, sort of bubble. Um, as it was, we were kind of stuck there for, you know, better part of a month in, in one hotel, one room, um, and very limited access to, you know, really anything, you know, resembling fresh air or, or uh, 
you know, just some nice open space. Brett, sorry, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I just want to talk about um, the play itself uh, in the empty arenas, and they try to fill um, with music and sound effects, of course, try to create the atmosphere. And I saw a lot of different opinions from a fan's perspective. Personally, I thought um, the play was great. Um, It was enjoyable to watch. I didn't lose a lot from watching on TV. But what about the players and the coaches and everything? Uh, Was there a lack of energy at times, or was that something you were able to shut out and just focus on the game? I don't don't think there was a a lack of energy. What was missing, I think, was that the home ice energy. Um, You know, especially for us, we played Toronto in Toronto. So, uh, you know, we played two of the five games sitting on their bench, uh, one of the games we dressed in their room. Uh, it was vi- really, really eerie uh, process to go through. Um, I, I think that the the lack of ability to keep momentum was a big issue. Uh, goal was scored. By the time the puck was dropped, it felt like you were at equilibrium again, where a lot of times with a buzzing rink with 20,000 screaming fans, your next two, three shifts, you're just getting pushed by the crowd. You're, you're, you're just using that energy to just to now try and bury that team. And the, the team, the road team that's been scored on is hoping to withstand it. Uh, those, those real highs and lows of energy, um, I didn't realize were such a big part of the game. And again, until they weren't there, I uh, didn't realize how much fans add to the game and i you know everybody says you know we really appreciate our fans i'm not sure anybody who went through that bubble experience is ever going to appreciate fans more Mm -hmm. than when they do finally come back because you know you look at our series with toronto for instance if if they go on the road and have a three nothing comeback come back from three nothing win in overtime and then we go back to toronto for game five there's nobody sitting down. That that place is an absolute zoo uh, when the when the game starts. And for me, they've got five, eight, ten minutes maybe of built-in energy just from the crowd. I mean, it's going to be an exciting game anyway. But they're just getting that extra juice is something that you know it, that was a unique situation because we were actually playing in Toronto. But it was a good example that like we're actually playing this game. And there's no atmosphere. Hmm. There's no atmosphere. Like that's that atmosphere of the rink. When you go into specific rinks, there's a feel. There's an energy. Uh, we we walked into games. Uh, you know, say we were the second or third game of the day. We would walk in while the game was on. Couldn't hear a thing. You couldn't hear. You wouldn't know that there was a professional hockey game going on. Hmm. Walking in through the by the Zam, you know, through the the uh, press entrance. And that was like, we're like, well, just listen to this. Like, listen to what you can't hear. Um, and I think that that, that energy, um, whether it affected the play on the ice or not, uh, I, I would say it probably did a little bit. Um, and I, what, what was missing again was, was some of those pushes that you get on home ice. And then some of those 
you know, those furious sort of charges that come at you when you're the visiting team and you've just given a goal up and now, you know, we all feel it and well, okay, let's, these next couple shifts might be a little hairy. Uh, let's get through it. Let's get, let's get back. And then let's start taking this game over again. Brad, I want to get to the nuts and bolts of how you beat my Maple Leafs. What, what did it come down to? Like, how did you, like, what, what would you pinpoint as the key to that series and why you won? Well, I think goaltending was a big issue. I, well, not a big issue. Certainly not for us. I thought Corpusala was fantastic. Um, you know, the game game four where they come back from three nothing. Merzlikens um, is actually uh, has tweaked his groin at a point in that game and doesn't want to tell the trainer. And then at a certain point, uh, I think it was going into overtime. He knew that he was in bad shape and hadn't said a thing to that point and I was, you know, scared out of his wits to say anything. And um, so that was a great lesson for him. I, I think the goal by Foudy uh, in game five from the goal line uh, was a huge goal. I, I just felt there was a couple times where our guys gave us a huge save mm-hmm. and at the other end, the puck found a way to go in yeah. sometimes at the absolute wrong time. Um I think what helped us against Toronto was that we felt they were fairly similar in how they had their success as Tampa was the year previously. And so we had that success to sort of look back on. And uh, I think it gave our guys a level of confidence going in that, hey, we've already gone up against a real offensive juggernaut and we've we've found a way to get it done. And um, lots of ebb and flow in that series. Um, and it, it was very... Again, it's too bad there weren't fans there because there was a lot of stuff happening, uh, mm-hmm. good and bad for both teams. And so um, I would say that goaltending was probably the difference. And I would say that the the ability to approach it from our standpoint, uh, almost identically to how we went after Tampa or what the game plan was against uh, Tampa um, to a certain degree anyway, uh, was, was very similar and uh, I, I, I would say that that maybe gave us a little bit of a leg up. I, it's interesting because I remember back in 93, they interviewed Jim Fergosi, the then Philadelphia Phillies manager, about Kurt Schilling and about uh, how much they're going to ride him pitching. And watching the defense of the Columbus Blue Jackets kind of reminded me uh, of that because um, uh, Fergosi's quote was, I'm going to keep Schilling going until his arm falls off. Your top two defensemen were skating till their legs fell off. I mean, they played a phenomenal series. Yeah, that's a that's a pair that we've you know we've grown to love, and they've they've done a heavy workload for us, and they're both fantastic hockey players. And I think the next stage for their growth is probably to get split up. Uh, probably, certainly Jones has been a guy that's been able to bring another player along even when Z uh, showed up for us back when I started four years ago. Um, I think Z's at that stage now where we should be able to give him a, a player that's uh, maybe not considered a, you know, a bona fide uh, star or superstar and, and he should be able to play against the majority of the league. And I think that's going to be the next step in their growth. Uh, I still think 
uh, Seth Jones has a has a Norris Trophy, uh, you know, in his future. Uh, doesn't help us that we're in a smaller media market. Um, you know, maybe a no better example was John Tortorella this year, uh, not winning the Jack Adams. Um, but I, you know, Zach is a guy that kind of looks like he's whole humming it out there and scored 20 goals in in 60 plus games. Uh, Seth is a guy I think in four years twice I've seen him look like he's tired. Uh, we regularly probably overplay both of those guys. For them both to be over 60 minutes in that five overtime game, uh, we knew game two was going to be an issue. Uh, and we knew game three. Uh, we weren't worried about game two because we knew Tampa was going to be just as dog-tired as we were. It was game three where we, instead of getting rid of Toronto in four, we let them back into it. We play the last game on Sunday night, and we play the first game Tuesday afternoon. Mm. And I think... Uh, the fact that it goes, you know, as many hours as it did hurt us a lot more than it did Tampa, and especially not winning it. Uh, the point goal, you know, it's a type of goal that you get sunk on where he's just putting it on net and it happens to find a, its way in there. And um, But those two guys, we know our, where our strength is on our team. We're, we're looking to get uh, a little bit more, a deeper up front a little bit more weapons offensively, um, but right now it's our goaltending and our defense, obviously, that are our real strengths. And, you know, we have to play a certain way because of that, but it's not necessarily, for me, a bad type of hockey, and it's something I'm very comfortable coaching through. Brad, I just want to mention to these guys before we go on uh, that I've now asked about nine or ten people what happened to my Maple belief. So I'm done, guys. I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> I've Thank now formulated you. my opinion, and we have to move on from Freddie. Anyway, oh Brad, my God, Brad, listen to this guy. Brad, were you surprised? You just mentioned Torch not getting the Jack Adams. A, were you surprised? And B, do you think he was slighted by the media? Well, I, I think if you're if he's not on your ballot, then I would say that's a slight. And uh, Ryan and I were talking earlier today. I, I know the exact number of guys that didn't have it on their ballot. And uh, to me, that's a slight. To me, that's a, you know, that becomes a personal thing, which I don't think these awards are supposed to be about. I think they're supposed to be about uh, how you do your job and how you get your team to perform. And uh, we joked in uh, in the in the coach's office before some of those games that we didn't have a, a lineup that you could skate in an exhibition game because we didn't have eight guys that were veteran guys. I mean, it wasn't like we had a few injuries. It was it was almost comical uh, uh, to a point where uh, we we knew that we had to go in and keep the game close and hope for a break. And the real credit goes to the players, you know, the Nathan Gerbys and the Kevin Stenlands and these guys that came in and scored huge goals and made huge plays at huge times and got us on the cusp of, you know, until the, the pause for COVID, we were right there, a, a point out. And, you know, the last 12 games would have been tough for us. Uh, so, you know, it's maybe good that it goes to 24 teams uh, for our sake, but uh, we knew that we were going to push and play as hard as we could as a team until they told us we couldn't play anymore. And yeah, Brad, 
we really appreciate you doing this. Uh, you guys, like you said, overcame a lot of adversity and had a heck of a year. Whenever the NHL starts up again, very excited to see what you guys can do as uh, maybe a second chapter to the success you had this year. Thanks for doing this, man. Well, thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Really appreciate uh, NHL associate coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets, Brad Shaw, joining us. We'll take a quick break here on MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports. Welcome back to MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. Thanks to NHL coach Brad Shaw for joining us in the last segment. We are now joined by our resident wagering expert from CoolBet. It's Chris Abbott. Chris, how are you? I'm good, fellas. How are we doing uh, this week? We're doing well. We're excited for week four of the NFL. Uh, quickly, though, Titans-Steelers, bit of a dicey situation. The game has had to be postponed. They tried to move it. Then more positive tests came back. It's just going to float to a bye week. They'll have to make it up later in the season. Real quick, just if anybody had bets on that game, like how does that work in the gambling world? Yeah, so everyone has their own kind of rules and regulations. For us, if a game is postponed, we uh, we give it 48 hours to be played, and the bets will still hold. But uh, for a situation like this, where it's time in the future, bets will be canceled and people will be refunded. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting situation because the NFL schedule is pretty tight, you know, and uh, I'm not sure how they're going to do this. And it's not like uh, other sports we just like pop in and play on a Wednesday in between weeks. But man, maybe that's what they have to do. I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one for sure. Uh, looking at this weekend, some marquee matchups, of course. I don't know if this one's marquee, but it's two struggling teams that could desperately use a win. Vikings, Texans, who do we like in this one? Yeah, you know, this one hasn't moved a whole lot. Three and a half point favorites at home, the Houston Texans. Um, you know, some people might wonder if Minnesota had any fallout from their potential COVID exposure with Tennessee. Like, this is all things that we haven't talked about in the betting world before so it's interesting but um yeah it's a tough one I, I think I still like Minnesota especially getting three and a half points there like I think it's going to be a close game but Dalvin Cook has proven to be absolutely awesome um and again uh, as I said before anytime I can and if they're if they're a favorite I just I, I can't bet on them right now I just absolutely cannot I think there's more positives in Minnesota than there is in Houston Certainly agree. Boy, they missed DeAndre Hopkins, let me tell you. Colts, Bears, this is an interesting one. Phillip Rivers and the Colts looking pretty okay. And then, hey, Nick Foles comes in for Mitch Trubisky, and all of a sudden the Bears look dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that's a little bit of, like, flying high and also look who they came back against, like the, the team that is synonymous with blowing leads. <laughs> you gotta give you got to give Nick Foles credit, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I mean, the Colts are, are a, a, a strong team, like top to bottom. Mo Ali Cox is my guy, by the way. Picked him up in fantasy this week. People always get mad at me for taking tight ends. But, uh, you know, he's, he's getting the job done. Uh, running game is still a bit of a question mark, of course, with the Colts. But uh, Phillip Rivers will keep the games close. So right now we're looking at Indianapolis as a two-point favorite. That's probably right about where it'll be. I probably won't bet this game, uh, even though it is intriguing. But it is a, always a good reminder that games that you just quite can't put your finger on, you don't have to bet. Nobody's forcing you. Absolutely right. Let's look at a marquee matchup here, of course. Chiefs-Patriots, my New England Patriots going into Arrowhead. Do they have a shot at winning this? What's the line like? 
Uh, we've got the Chiefs as a six and a half point favorite, and I think Ooh. after the way they played uh, Monday night, you've you've got to take that. I think like as a six and a half point favorite inside a touchdown, they look so good. Um, you know, Baltimore had the top defense in the league coming into that game, and it sure didn't look like it when Patrick Mahomes got going. Uh, potential for a letdown and, and a potential for a, a you know a Patriots ramped up to play this one. So uh, you take that in consideration. One thing I might do is just play the straight Chiefs money line and parlay it with like the Dallas Cowboys who are only four point favorites, which I think is uh, is a little bit mean to them. People are betting the Cleveland Browns for some reason this week. I, I don't get it. They can only beat terrible, terrible football teams. It's not like the, the Cowboys are bad. I, I agree, and this is why you listen to his advice. This is why he is the expert on our show, Chris Abbott from Cool Bet, giving you all the wagering advice you need heading into week four of the NFL. We appreciate you doing this, buddy, as always, and of course, we appreciate you guys listening to and watching this program. You can listen to us Friday nights at 6 on CKNX AM 920 and CKNX.ca. We're on all the best podcast apps. Follow us on social media at MWO underscore sports, and watch the show Friday nights at 8, Sunday nights at 9 with our friends on Whiteman T. TV. For myself, Ryan Drury, Clarkie, Steve Savern, and our buddy Chris Abbott, we appreciate you listening to and watching MWO Sports, brought to you as always by CoolBet.co.